and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and boys and girls, I gotta, I, I gotta tell you some stuff here. The when you launch your your podcast, or for that matter, even when you're just planning it, you know, like you're in the the, the planning stages. What is it that I want to talk about, and what are the topics and uh, the different subjects and all, and all these other sorts of things. You know, when you're trying to figure out what your show is going to be, there are certain things that are going to just randomly appear on your list as you go along that you weren't planning for, you never really intended to talk about, but for whatever reason, you, you just have a fancy to do it. So you do it. There are other things, though, that are on your big list of ideas literally from day one. You know, like when the first day you put uh, fingertip to keyboard to start planning all of this stuff out and where you're going to go, what you're going to do, you always knew that you're destined to talk about a certain subject, be it a certain comic book, a certain TV show, a certain, uh, maybe uh, if you have a music podcast, there'll be a certain album or artist or freaking who, whatever, you know? You always knew it was going to get there sooner or later. So I dare not exaggerate in saying that the show that you're about to hear has been on the books before day one, you know, uh, like negative two weeks. You know, uh, This has been there for a very, very freaking long time. And I wish I could express how excited and happy and in some ways kind of relieved, but definitely thrilled I am to finally start talking about some of this stuff. Now, before I uh, stop speaking in riddles and start getting a little bit more specific, something I want to make clear to you guys is that the bigness of today's subject, at least for me personally, kind of demands that I, I shall be politic about this and say that I recruit outside assistance, right? Uh, another way of saying it is that I kind of arm twisted somebody into joining in on today's discussion. The reason is I want to make sure that I cover all possible bases with this. And the way I looked at it, there was one man and only one man who could help me get there. So I welcome back to the show for the first time in I think a really freaking long time, the co-host and co-founder really of too many podcast to ever mention, but specifically, I would say the entire Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, which consists of the Quarter Bin Podcast, the Short Bin show, Short Box <laughs> Showcase, uh, also uh, Dorkness to Light, which is both a podcast and a blog, and I think even a Pinterest or something, now that I come to think of it. But anyway, Professor Allen, welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? It is great to be here. Always good to chat with you. Yeah, it's great, great to chat with you as well. Uh, I got to tell you, you are quickly becoming a uh, podcasting mogul in your own in your own regard. I know that I've uh, there was a comic book review podcast uh, that you do, the Quarterbin uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. I think I even I think I even completely forgot to mention that <laughs> when I was given all your different accolades. But uh, you really are quite busy, you know. But as you've said on many occasions, you and I are sort of peers, podcasting peers, or the same podcasting generation in a sense. Exactly. So uh, it's great to have you back on the show. So uh, Definitely. now today's episode is going to be all about the 2000 movie Unbreakable. And so before we start getting into the analysis of all of this, slicing and dicing, let's just uh, shoot the breeze a little bit. What exactly is your origin story with this movie? Well, of course, now, pardon me while I open up my coat here. 
<laughs> well, of course, it goes to the movie before. It goes to The Sixth Sense. And The Sixth Sense was a movie that I had heard about. I don't even remember if I heard that there was, what the twist was. I heard awesome movie. There was a twist. That was back in the early pre-spoiler, at least pre-social media. Yeah, spoiler, spoilers days, and so I went to that in in the theater. I knew there was sort of a little eerie, suspense, horror aspects to it. So I went on, and my wife is pretty uh, 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 nervous and careful about that stuff. So I went on my own. Really enjoyed, really enjoyed it. Thought uh, thought that she could handle it. So then we uh, we went to it, and of course, part of the fun of a movie, whether it's now Avengers Endgame or whatever it is where you know what's going to happen mm-hmm. and half the fun now is seeing the other person's reaction to it that you're with Yes. Um, so I was able to experience that and then when this one came out uh, she and I went to it at, at, at the theater Oh. and because and, uh, we were uh, uh, I mean, big big uh, Shyamalan fans at, the, at, at that time and and I had a history of being a comic book person. I knew it tied in a little bit uh, to that and uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, when uh, when you called, uh, when you sent up the uh, quarter bin signal, the Magnus <laughs> signal, and uh, I uh, got the movie and my wife and I watched it again. Uh, and we, again, spoilers, both really enjoyed it. Oh, all right. Well, I'm going to... Uh, uh, as we discuss this, I'm I'm going to try not to spoil forward and talk about future Shyamalan movies, but I certainly will reference backwards yes. to, the, to the Sixth Sense and to this and some of those ways that you that you see him grow and uh, things that he did really well, you know, at least at this po- point of his career. Uh, yeah, and I definitely think that's that's the uh, the right way to go. Um... And I'm going to immediately violate that a little bit by saying, uh, obviously, it's not exactly a spoiler anymore, or at least it's not officially a spoiler anymore, that Unbreakable does fit into a trilogy. And so I guess, number one, I've invited uh, Professor Allen to participate in the follow-ups. Number two, I saw precisely zero of these movies uh, in this trilogy in, in theaters. And, uh, you know, we can talk about the other two when we talk about the other two, but for, uh, you know, as it relates to Unbreakable, um, the marketing for for Unbreakable, I think, was really weird. You know, eat, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, this, this movie has, I would say, ramifications on comics, not, it, it did not premiere in the modern cinematic marketplace, which is all about comics and it seems very little else and so it was marketed primarily as sort of in a very vague sense as kind of like a thriller and i remember there being considerable confusion over what exactly this thing is supposed to be vis-a-vis the sixth sense like is this a sequel or is this the director's next movie and it's totally unrelated to the sixth sense what is this and there was a considerable confusion over that and so what ended up happening was my girlfriend of that time, uh, she went to, to to see the movie. And I got the idea that, you know, like, I wouldn't say that she raved about it exactly. But, you know, she thought, yeah, you know, it was kind of an interesting movie. I mean, I don't know if I'd care to see it again, but, you know, it, it was all right. Oh, by the way, 
it's not about comics, but in a weird kind of way, it is about comics, you know? And so, Magnus, you may want to see it. And I thought, okay, I'll be sure to remember that. And it's kind of hard to put it into words now, but it's like, guys, you got to understand, this was like very close to 20 years ago. I was a different person back then, you know? And so, you know, whatever happened with her ended up happening with her. I never saw the movie. And then she and I had, I would say, a, a pretty nasty breakup. And it's kind of an it's almost a cliche at this point that, you know, whenever you have that bad of a breakup with somebody, it's like anything that they like, anything that they think is good, anything that they love and cherish, you want to avoid like the plague because who wants to be reminded? <laughs> right. And so I did not see this movie for like a really long time. And what changed all of that was it was uh, I want to say the spring of 2003. I was freelancing at the time. And so when you freelance, there's a lot of hurry up and wait that that's going on. So it's like, yeah, the money is ridiculously good, but it's there are times when the challenge is like filling the hours. What are you going to do with your time while you're waiting for these other people to do their thing? So because your work is contingent upon them completing their work and you're so you've got you, my point is you've got time to kill. And so, you know, by that time, I I, I think signs ha had uh, already come out. And so I liked Shyamalan. And, you know, I saw that the Unbreakable, they had like some kind of fancy pants, super duper special edition, whoop de doo version of the DVD that was out at mm, that time. Right. And so I thought, you know, normally I'm not one to make a blind purchase on a DVD, but I kind of like the sixth sense i really like signs and so his track record with me is strong enough you know what i think i can justify it in this case i think in this case i can justify a blind purchase on a dvd and uh, professor i'm not sure if you would agree with this or not because one of the things i've noticed is you're just a lot smarter than i am but it took me a really long time to contextualize unbreakable as a film i th i think it would be accurate to say i i didn't enjoy it i saw value in it but i didn't understand it it's like i know this is good but there's something about this that just does not add up for me there's something about this movie that just i don't understand and so for that reason i'm i'm not gonna dump the cd or the dvd off at some used you know movie store or something like that i know i want to keep this but I don't understand what it is that I just watched. You know, I like the acting. I like the, and it just, it, it took a really long time to process it. And usually if I don't like a movie, I mean, that's the end of it. I, <laughs> but this is one of those things that it never completely went away. And maybe it's just, it was a question of maturity. I don't know, but maybe a professor, I'm, I'm going to run something by you. And oh, I just, uh Oh, I just want to just kind of get your get your take on this. But when you when an artist creates something, you know, if it's a painting or uh, an album, a movie, just whatever, sometimes there I mean, there is such a thing as an instant hit. Like the public instantly understands where you're coming from and they're on board with it. But some things, some ideas or some concepts or or just whatever, they need time to to bake a little bit and they need time for people to kind of get their heads around it. Is that what happened with unbreakable? Do you think? 
that that's possible because I mean even like even now we've had a few more examples of it in the last few years I guess the idea of a comic book movie not featuring known IP properties yes and but I think that was a, maybe a little more unusual back then and it's not really about comic it, it's not quite a deconstruction but it sort of is yeah. it's not quite gritty real world but it sort of is yeah i, I, I think it's, it's a misfit in a lot of ways and, and maybe that's part of the issue is a inability to classify or to categorize exactly how it fits where it fits yeah well as i say this is one of those movies that it at a minimum it took me a long time to get my head around it and in this case i think i'm kind of a proxy for the public at large this movie was not a flop but it was not the home run that the sixth sense had been either and yet as time has gone on people have been constantly reevaluating this film to such a level that i would go so far as to say that it, we're at a point now where people regard the sixth sense as you know, look that's an interesting movie it has a fun twist at the, at the end of it all of which was telegraphed early on kind of you know what had what would be uh, what would become classic Shyamalan in a lot of ways but really unbreakable is this is the real masterpiece especially of his early work this is the one that people seem to really take close close to heart mm-hmm. and so for that reason you know and kind of similar to what the professor and I did with uh, the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy I've got the Wikipedia summary up in front of me and so what I want to do let me just jump in one second before we get into this film, just for one quick second. Oh, and, please do. And, and yes. uh, comment also on one thing you said. I would, to some extent, put signs in that category as well. Really? As a, as a movie that I th- that I think is maybe being reevaluated uh, positively. I, th- I think you can almost put those three movies sort of together as as representing the Shyamalan bursting on the scene phase of his career. And yeah. then we can, and that, and it's most people will say it's after signs that the slide starts. Yeah, um, and I, I can kind of see that argument. Um, the, you know, originally I just had a, a, a note about those three films, and originally I was thinking I don't know if I'm even going to mention this to the professor, just because, <laughs> in a certain, in a certain sense, it is kind of off topic. But since we're here, um, and one of the things that that I did, I look, you, you know, Professor, you, you need to understand something. I saw uh, The Sixth Sense that one time in, in theaters, and, you know, it's like, hey, I like it. You know, uh, Bruce Willis, always welcome in my book. Um, you know, fun little movie. Again, neat little twist at the end. Um, but then that was that. I didn't see it again until I would say it was probably like a year ago, and just by sheer coincidence, I had also rewatched Signs at about that same time. And I was also kind of reevaluating Unbreakable a little bit. Again, not these were not done in tandem with each other. It's just by coincidence, these three movies seem to pop up at right around the same time. And I noticed that I don't want to say that the, that Malcolm Crow, David Dunn, and Graham Hess are the same archetype as one another, because I don't believe that they are. 
But at the same time, I really cannot ignore the connective tissue that exists between those three characters in those movies that you have somebody who I don't know as I'd go so far as to call him a loner exactly, but he is nevertheless a very troubled individual who can only achieve any kind of, I don't even know what to call it, inner peace perhaps, after Mm -hmm. some kind of process of self-acceptance and understanding who he truly is, understanding the core of his identity and making peace with that, from which flows a certain, I don't even know what, what else, kind of like a Zen sort of reconciliation mm-hmm. or a spiritual redemption, perhaps. That seems to be a common element in those three movies. And before anybody gives me any kind of uh, credit, you know, for like fancy pants analysis, guys, the re- the realization had no sooner sunk in with me a couple of days ago that I Googled it and I realized I'm not the only one who's noticed this. <laughs> so don't give me any kind of credit for originality here. But I at least wanted to throw that out there for you. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, this, you know, comes up a bit in, in the discussion of this particular film. But I think that, you know, Shyamalan became known as the plot guy, the twist guy. Yeah. And I actually think his strength is in writing, I think the way I phrased it in my notes, sort of characters in crisis. Yes. I think the the husband-wife dynamic in this film is legitimate and you know realistic and is really well-written. A lot of nuance, a lot of subtlety. It's just very well done. And that's similar to what's happening in Signs. And, uh, and you mentioned the sixth sense there again. There's, there's something to that, and I, I, I do like this idea of the person coming to accept who they are. That really thematically certainly links those three together. And I think as he became the suspense guy, the twist guy, the plot guy, I mean, again, not to get too far ahead, but I think, I, I, I think, I think he focused or was forced to focus on what actually is not his strength. Or, or not as strong as developing realistic human characters and writing really realistic human, struggling human, searching human dialogue. <laughs> and see, you, you know, it's like the minute you throw all that out there, now I want to start talking about the uh, successor to to uh, to Signs. But uh, no, uh, that is <laughs> that movie is definitely a totally separate conversation. Yes. And we... Uh, probably are better off leaving that for for another day. Now, uh, Professor, the way I thought we could do this is kind of similar to Chris Nolan's Batman trilogy, just kind of going through the uh, Wikipedia summary, just sort of piecemeal. And, um, you know, the uh, just basically commenting on all of these things as we go through it. And hopefully we can be comprehensive, at least as as far as Unbreakable is concerned. And if, if you wish, how I'll go ahead and allow it, you know, any comments that you want to make about Unbreakable or about Sixth Sense or about Signs or, or just whatever, as they come to you, just feel free to let it to, to let it fly. How's that sound? Yep. All right, cool. All right, so uh, our story starts. This is uh, the beginning of the Wikipedia summary. In Philadelphia, 1961, Elijah Price is born with type 1 osteogenesis imperfecta, a rare disease that renders uh, patients' bones extremely fragile and prone to fracture. Elijah grows up to become a comic book art dealer and develops a theory based on the comics that he's read during childhood that if he, that if he, meaning Elijah, represents 
ex the extreme of human frailty, logically there must be someone unbreakable, quote unquote, at the opposite extreme. And that seems like a good place. There's so much in there. Mm -hmm. That seems like a good place to kind of put a, uh, a pin in this and just say, the opening sequence that takes place in that... Let me, let, let me just jump just for a second, because that's not how it starts. No, no it isn't. It but starts with some flashes on the screen about comic books. Yes, it does. And re-watching it, Matt probably watched it eight, ten years ago, but then re-watching it for this, I had completely forgotten that. I thought that the comic book aspect was a slow roll. Yeah. That it's only sort of at the end. I mean, we we... A few things are revealed about it at the end, about the nature of that relationship. Well, I guess they just spoiled it in that first paragraph there. Um, yeah. But I thought the comic book stuff was slowly built into it, that that's part of what the dawning was. And when I rewatched this to discuss this with you, the fact that that's the first thing you see where it talks about the comic book industry. It talks about uh, number of comics produced and that sort of thing. It, it, the fact that this is a, that, that comic books are a theme is it, that is the first thing you see. And that surprised me. Yeah. And that actually leads into, you know, one of my points that um, far from lying to us, Knight literally tells us what's yes. happening yes. every step of the way, and he still somehow, man we'll get to it when we get to it, but he still somehow manages to work a twist into the movie anyway. And I'll, 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 I'll spoil this. So this would be at least the second, maybe the third time my wife has seen it. Mm -hmm. She was surprised at the end. Really? I mean, it had been 10 years. Oh, yeah. That's... 20 years since first seeing it, and 8 or 10 years since probably second seeing it. But was surprised by the turn at the end. Yeah, and I think we all were. Uh -huh. um, one of the things that I just cherish about this movie, I mean, I, I love, love, love this about the movie is, uh, and, and we see it from the first, you know, actual film sequence, we see that this is, I don't want to say the word ponderous, but this is a movie that is certainly filled to overflowing with these long, leisurely takes mm -hmm. with very specific camera moves. These are not random camera movements. And anyone who's expecting uh, a more conventional type of film that has relatively quick cuts and has lots of coverage, you know, close-ups and stuff like right. that, this is not that kind of movie. This is, uh, in a weird kind of way, it's almost amateurish, except it's not. You know, no. this is what you would it's expect. It's very controlled. Yeah. And, you know, if you go back and watch a movie like Clerks, which also has very long takes... That's done from a very garage band. Let's make a movie amateur kind of uh, mentality. Whereas here, it's very deliberate. The camera movements are very carefully paced and timed. And nothing is, nothing is left to chance with this movie. And that is made very obvious right from the start. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is one of those things that kind of threw me off the first time I watched it back in 2003. I, I was just like, what in the world am I even looking at here? <laughs> right. You know, so this you are, thing is... You are just, literally seeing an origin story. Yeah. And it it's just, from a cinematic standpoint, mm -hmm. it was so different from anything right. that, that I was used to. And I think no small part of my distaste was a little bit of impatience on my own part. I kind of wanted to be back then where we are now with all of these different comic book <laughs> movies and whatnot. And I think that was some part of my confusion that, you know, well, where's the big 
uh, action conclusion to this movie. Where's where where's the capes and the heat vision? And this is not that movie. And the, again, I'm not trying to belabor this. It's made very clear from the first frame. This is this is not this is a movie about comics, but it's not a comic book movie. Right. And the distinction that's something you need to always keep in right. mind. And the this first scene has a thematic element in a reference. This is in a I guess it's a changing room at a department store is my sense of where this is happening. Yes. And key is it's a room with lots of mirrors. <laughs> and that first scene is all of, I mean, the, a lot of this camera movement is you're going back and forth to mirrors and you never know, are you seeing the, if a person is speaking, is it them or is it one of the many reflections? And obviously you were, we're talking about glass, but I think the mirror, the duality and, and, and then again, then that sort of reference to, uh, to being surrounded by glass are really the two things that, you know, having seen the movie a couple times now, immediately, uh, immediately jump out. But that's part of the absolute control that you know, that that Shyamalan has on this scene. Absolutely, I agree. And you know, I guess one of the last things that I that I at least have to we don't have to move on if you don't want to. But one of the last things, at least, that I have to say about that department store scene is um, I just really like that doctor. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I like his style and I like his, um, I, I like the acting that's going on there because he's holding baby Elijah and this look of horror, it just it blink and you miss it, but it flashes right across his face. He's like the full implications of what he's looking at. They start to sink in for him. And he asks, he, he asks the most, the most obvious to him question, which is, did anybody drop this baby? Like what's going on? And, but just before he does, this, this look of confusion and uh, compassion, and let's face it, no small amount of terror is on his face. And it's this, again, this movie is filled with just tiny little reactions that you really have to pay attention to. And it's one of those things I think that kind of rewards repeat viewings. I'm not going to throw shade at you know any of the other comic book movies that are coming out these days, but I will say that with a lot of them, what you see is what you get. In fact, in a lot of cases, that's all you get. Whereas here, paying close attention is rewarded. Uh, repeat viewings are rewarded, you know, and uh, I just want to throw that out there for you. Right. See what, see if you've got anything. I, also, there seemed to be a, a, a dawning realization on the mom as well. Yeah. You know, she was starting to, I mean, the fact that he just kept crying and crying was worrying her and worrying her and her seeing the doctor's reaction, then obviously that question about whether he was dropped, you know, uh, you can see the heartbreak, you know, in, in, in her, the concern, the fear. Yeah. It's, um, it, I, I'll just say that this is the perfect, you know, apart from that text piece at the beginning, which is also very appropriate, this is the perfect opening sequence for this movie. And, um, you know, stylistically and in terms of character, everything else, I just, I just dig it. Now, um, the uh, Wikipedia summary, that, that part that we read, it goes on to say, you know, uh, Elijah grows up, uh, becomes a comic book art dealer, develops a theory, etc. We see little instances of, or flashbacks, I should say, of uh, Elijah growing up. And I even uh, made a, a post about this on the Trennis Magnus Punches Reality Facebook page um, a couple of days ago, I think. At the time that Professor Allen and I are recording this, it was a couple of days ago. 
Um, it was basically a scene where uh, Mrs. Price leaves a gift-wrapped comic book in a, a public park for uh, uh, young adolescent Elijah to find. And you get the idea, this is the beginning of him becoming a comic book fan. And my point in the post that I made was that, you know, as people, we all bring our own peculiar baggage to whatever whatever it is that we're watching or reading. Who we are as people directly affects how we process these things. And I, uh, I don't exactly have the most confessional podcast in the whole world, but... I'm going to be slightly confessional here and say that I have never been able to watch that scene, never once, without without tearing up. Because, you know, my circumstances were very different from Elijah's. But at the same time, the common element here was that he and I had uh, comic books to get us through some very difficult times uh, when we were children. And, you know, there was a time when... Um, when we had just moved to Houston, I didn't have any, you know, I'm the new guy in school and I was getting off, it seemed on the wrong foot with everybody, you know, the principals, the teachers, my fellow students, et cetera. And the only comfort I really had, you know, apart from family, I mean, but, you know, the only real comfort that I had going for me was comics. And, you know, it was in, it was not very long after I finished up the third grade, which is when we moved here. You know, and I was going through all these difficult times that, you know, I became a comic book collector. It was actually that summer, you know, this is the summer after third grade. And so, but, you know, one of the reasons I think I was able to make that transition, you know, it, between the third and the fourth grade from being a reader to being a, you know, somebody who reads comics. And then later if the dog takes a leak on it, well, who cares? I got what I wanted. Actually collecting these things is that in a weird kind of way, yes, I am collecting stories. But at least at that time, I was collecting comfort. And um, kind of refuge, you know, uh, from very difficult life circumstances. And so, like I say, I mean, we, we all bring our own, you know, BS to this and mine included having at a kind of similar, it looked to me like a kind of similar phase of life, a very different struggle, but it had the same release valve in, in comic books. And uh, anyway, so I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> So in the present, actually, you know what, before we, before we get into this, um, I don't want to get too darkness to light here, <laughs> but, um, there, there actually, there is one other thing that I sort of skipped over a little bit. And if you don't want to go into it, I, I understand, but, uh, uh, the, the, the wiki summary says, you know, Elijah, blah, 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 develops a theory on the, uh, on the comics he's read during childhood that, Basically, there's some reality to this. That's the long and the short of it. You know, there's a there's some degree of truth in comics, not necessarily absolute reality in the sense of uh, the sole survivor of the planet Krypton, you know, flying around uh, downtown Metropolis. He's wearing a blue suit and a cape. He's saving people. Not that, but some part of comics has some sort of basis in in reality. And again, this is one of those times when our own baggage kind of comes into play here a little bit. Um, I don't think I've made a big point of mentioning this on my podcast very often, but, you know, at least, again, not to get too darkness to light, it is kind of relevant here. I am Catholic and a, a big part, uh, well, not a big part, but a valid part 
of Catholicism is that there have been people at certain times and in certain places, at least under certain conditions, that have exhibited abilities that we have to say are far beyond human. Heroic virtue. Yeah, that. But I, I might even say... Yeah, for lack of a better way to put it's, it, super, super it's human. supernatural, yeah, superhuman. Yeah. Um, the the best example that I can think of for this is uh, something that anybody can wiki and they can study for themselves and they can just make their own decisions. The story of Padre Pio, mm-hmm. who people who don't know him, who have no personal investment in him or his faith, or for that matter, religious faith of any kind, have they've all said that he had certain supernatural or superhuman or whatever you want to call it abilities, one of which included uh, by location. Uh, but there are other stories I've heard of, uh, you know, people who were flying uh, bombing missions in World War II who reported seeing Padre Pio, I dare not exaggerate, flying beside them in their bombers in midair, flying Superman-like, I guess, flying beside them in their planes, telling them not to bomb certain areas. And, To me, what it comes down to is how many of those stories can possibly be fake? You know, I mean, it comes to a level of, you know, even if these exact things didn't happen, there was something special about this guy, you know? And so, you know, Professor, I mean, I know that you and I don't have a lot of disagreement on at least certain religious subjects, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I at least wanted to throw that out there. And if you want to comment, you can or we can move on. It's just it's up to you. Not necessarily on that uh, specifically, although there are some amazing stories uh, about Padre Pio and 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 others. But I, I I think part of what Shyamalan is getting at here, or what what the what the character actually Elijah is getting at here, I refer to it as truth is truth, no matter where you find it. Yeah, <laughs> that there are certain things that are just are just true, and you know maybe he's tapping into that. You know he's he's he. Sensing this, this, uh, this, this hypothesis of his about people sort of at both ends of the the normal distribution, yeah. that if you know someone at one extreme ends, someone at at the other extreme must also uh, exist. And I, but I think he's you know in in he's he he is tapping into this movie universe's version of that. Yes, indeed. And um, <clears throat> there's a uh, in, in screenwriting they call it. Saving the cat and (laughs) saving the cat, you know, the the specific reference that comes from the beginning of of Lethal Weapon 3. And the idea of it is you when you introduce a character, you show them being who they are, doing what they do, you know, uh, basically the purest distillation of the truth and reality of the character. So as it is in, in Lethal Weapon 3 at the very beginning, you've got reckless, impulsive Martin Riggs paired up with kind of easygoing and yet still sort of high strung Roger Murtaugh. Uh, they, you know, they're cops. They're, you know, they, they are partners with one another. And Riggs wants to go into the building to find out about a bomb. Murtaugh wants to stay outside, wait for the bomb squad. Well, it's lethal weapon. So, you know, they're going inside and they accidentally trigger the bomb while trying to, to defuse it. And in the process, they save the cat. And so that that's where that comes from. And there is a save the cat with Elijah in his art gallery 
And this is one of those times when I kind of think of this as being kind of the character who is speaking is Elijah, but I get the idea this is a little bit of editorialization. Mm -hmm. Elijah is talking, well, he's telling off a a would-be customer, and I kind of have to wonder if Knight is editorializing here a bit with setting out a little bit of a mission statement of what exactly Unbreakable as a movie is going to be. Elijah basically tells the uh, tells the would-be customer, I don't sell toys. You are not in a toy store. This is not um, where you are. This is an art gallery. This is a piece of art. And I get the idea that you could say Knight is telling the audience, look, if what you're looking for is uh, like a Spider-Man cartoon or something like that, that is not what we're going to be doing here. Interesting. Laying out the thesis statement in the... In, in, in the words of one of the characters. I, yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but I like it. Yeah. And um, that that is Elijah's Save the Cat. This is a guy that, uh, this is the truest distillation of who Elijah is. He doesn't, he likes comics and he likes the stories. He likes, uh, you know, uh, the mythos and everything. He likes those things. I, it would be fair, I think, to say that he's that he's probably a Captain America fan. But his fandom of comics exists I would say separate and apart from his appreciation of comics as a form Mm -hmm. and art itself. Mm -hmm. And the direction he ultimately decided to go in with his life was not to open a comic book store. He wanted to open an art gallery and he wants this to be treated like an art gallery. And it sets out his, you know, his mindset, his method, well, not so much his methods. We get to that later, but it lays out his mindset and his agenda, I think, pretty early on. This is his save the cat. So right, good. Um, moving right along with this wiki summary, uh, in the present, David Dunn, a former star quarterback, now security guard, living with his wife Audrey and their young son Joseph. Wow, this is a hell of a run-on sentence. Takes a train home from a job interview in New York City. So I'm actually going to put a a pin back into the uh, wiki summary here. This is a very uncomfortable sequence before the train crash you understand yes, it is um, our hero is not very heroic or virtuous or anything mm-hmm. and you know the thing about it is i mean we're a, i think you're able to contextualize this this moment on the train with the uh, sports agent i've already forgotten her name but uh the sports agent who i later found out is married to james spader of all people so oh. yeah christmas must be interesting in that house and uh Basically, what Professor Allen and I are sort of talking around here is that David, he's on his way home and he sees what he thinks is an opportunity with a younger woman, which, by the way, could be where Spader got the idea. I mean, let's just put it out there. <laughs> uh, he sees what he thinks might be an opportunity with a, a, a just this beautiful, beautiful uh, a, a woman. She seems smart. She seems to have a lot of the same interests that he does. And so he just carefully slides his wedding ring off his finger and he tries to flirt with her badly, I might add. Mm-hmm. And it's just painful to watch. But it again, this is kind of his save the cat. You know, this is where this man is at yep. in his life, the absolute state of his relationship with his wife. And I would say for that matter, we could include his son Joseph in that as well. He is so disconnected from both of them that, you know what, Audrey makes it clear later in the movie, she at least claims that if he had 
pursued this or something similar, she wouldn't necessarily consider that cheating, consider how distant they are from one another. But at the same time, he does have a wife, he does have a son, he does have responsibilities, and he's searching for meaning, even if it's, I hate to say it, even if it's just kind of a meaningless fling on a train with a total stranger, he's at least, he's willing to roll the dice on the st- on the stability of his family life on that. That is how far David yep. has fallen. And uh, I don't know, to talk about it anymore, it's just, it's kind of icky, so I'm, yep. just, I'm, I'm passing it back to you. <laughs> But some well-done camera work again there, because you're sort of seeing it often from, I guess the idea would be from like the row behind, mm-hmm. and the camera is sort of shooting between seats yeah. from behind. And the effect that that has is it often puts all of the, the, the characters that you're seeing in the scene uh, separate. Yes. You know, framed separately. Brief Almost like scene. comic book panels, huh? Hey, how about that? Uh, brief scene while while they're together in the same, you know, in the same frame, uh, but but for the most part, you you are getting distinct, separate, alone, uh, as you said, solo panels of these characters. Yeah. So, uh, the wiki uh, summary goes on to say the train ca- crashes, killing the other 131 passengers. David is declared the only survivor, sustaining no injuries. And do you want to keep going, or do you have something to say there? Uh, it's a it's a pretty amazing scene, actually. The crash itself is 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 I think pretty well done. Yeah. Uh, what what I discovered is they actually did film an actual crash. You know, we get mm-hmm. basically David's premonition, right. and I would say probably the rest of the passengers as well. They all look out the window and notice, wow, we're really going really fast here so and everyone you can see that they all have just about the same realization at the same time this train track is going to curve at some point and we are going way fast so what's going to happen when we get to that curve and there's this look of absolute panic after a certain point on david's face and again it just kind of speaks to the subtlety of performance that we see all throughout this movie he's not chewing his fingernails or running his hand through his hair or anything like that He's just wide-eyed. He's confused. You can see the adrenaline is building in his chest, the helplessness. He knows what's about to happen, and he knows he's powerless to stop it. And and because of the sort of the nature of the premonition, things are slowing down for him. Some of the sound drops out. Mm-hmm. So you're getting a lot of slow and suspenseful uh, things that are you know that are being. It's being displayed in a, in a slow way, in this, but it's building that suspense. And again, you, you are seeing a lot of this from, from as you said, from da- either from David's literal point of view or at least you know, very close to him, you know, the surroundings around him. It's not a grand epic, um, you know, uh, special effects, you know, extravaganza of, of, of a train crash. It's sort of the train, cr- the train cr- crash as experienced by one person. Yes, indeed. And I can't help thinking that in the hands of a different filmmaker, again, this is not to cast aspersions on anybody. This is just a statement on Knight's uh, approach to making this movie. If someone else had made it, I can't help thinking that there would have been like a fugitive style train crash Mm, sequence where we see, uh, you know, where we actually see perhaps stronger indications of David's powers during the, the crash sequence. And that 
obviously does not happen here. We basically cut from premonition to TV coverage of the uh, train crash. And this this is, again, just an ingeniously well-done sequence, especially when he comes to in the hospital, because I don't know if, if Knight necessarily intended this, but obviously one of the... Uh, one of the uh, key elements of this movie is the ambiguity over David's powers. Does he have him or does he not? And you would think, well, there is a chance that dumb luck, I, I don't know how this could possibly work, but there is a chance that, you know, you hear stories all the time about, all the time about people who fall off of buildings, who the wind maybe catches them in just the right way. And they, right. you know, they yeah. land on the ground. They got some bumps and bruises, but you land just right. Something happens. Yeah. Yeah, and they fall through an awning, perhaps, and you know it's million to one circumstances, but it could happen. And so, nevertheless, he wakes up in the hospital. So he's obviously been through some kind of trauma, and whatever that trauma is, it was sufficient enough to render him unconscious. And yet, he has no real injuries to speak of. So, was he injured? Well, he had to have been because he was unconscious. But if he was injured, you'd think if he was injured at all, you'd think he'd be injured a lot worse. And so right. there's this ambiguity about it, this deniability. And that to me is one of the great strengths of this movie that yes, there is a miraculous explanation, but there's also the more mundane explanation, either of which could be true at this at this juncture. And so there you go. So at the crash victim's memorial service, he finds an envelope on his car's windshield with a card inside bearing the logo and address of Elijah's art gallery, limited edition, that asks if David has ever been ill. David and Joseph meet with Elijah, who proposes to David his childhood theory of real-life superheroes. David becomes unsettled and leaves the store. So that's another place to kind of put a pin in it a bit. I'll, why don't you take the lead on this one? I've been running my mouth uh, quite a lot here. I think it's a good scene. We get uh, especially bringing in the uh, bringing in the sun and you do get you know, the he is more credulous or in he's more he is more believing yes. of this of this theory that is being that is being spun by this wild man and uh I, I I like the point where he asks uh, uh, David asks the son to leave, you know, th throw something out in the trash, and yeah. then they have the man to man talk, which is yeah. basically what scam are you trying to pull? It's not going to work. We're leaving now. And again, this is one of those things that and know, that seems that, like a reasonable reaction. Yeah, it does. And like the thing about that is that um, that again, it works on the repeat. Is it becomes clear. It's not a spoiler to say this. It becomes clear throughout the movie that David, he's got a pretty clear and pretty strong moral core. His behavior on the train, notwithstanding, he's got a very clear sense of right and wrong. And, and um, he says, look, I've seen guys like you all the time at my work. He has good reason not to believe anything that Elijah's telling him, but he, he doesn't He's not mean. He doesn't tell him off. He basically says, look, whatever it is that you're trying to pull is not going to work on me. What I like about that is that's a mature adult reaction to it. But there's this kind of virtuous, heroic element of stopping the bad guy. There is nothing personal here. It's not that I think that you're this big SOB or something like that. I'm not going to sit here and call you names. I'm just going to say, number one, I think you're trying something here. And number two, 
it's not going to fly. Not with me. So uh, don't bother me again. You know, and he's he's when you think about it, he's actually being very polite. He's being very pointed, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he's actually being really polite. And, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that I could picture, maybe not word for word, but that's more or less what I could picture Clark Kent saying to somebody under, let's face it, different circumstances. You know, Clark Kent is <laughs> Superman, but I could picture Clark Kent basically verbally trying to shut somebody down like that in in a very gentle way. You know, he's again, he's not personally attacking him. He's not insulting him or mocking him. He's just saying it's not going to happen, you know. And, and, and uh, part of this, what, uh, what 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 Elijah's doing, it's a villain monologue that you don't know is a villain monologue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and, and the great thing is, listeners, even if you have never watched this movie as a faithful acolyte of Mr. Magnus, you have heard some of this speech. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. In fact, that, again, that was one of those things that I didn't think a whole lot about at the time, but it was only, again, I want to say it was like a couple of years ago, I realized, you know, this movie has always been there for me. You know, it's never gone away. And it was even in my, I used to have these really, for those of you who are more recent listeners, I used to have these kind of opening bits of dialogue from different TV shows and movies and documentaries and stuff that were about comics. And the idea was, you know, if I could throw some profanity in there, people are going to know that this is not necessarily like a G-rated show. And if that language <laughs> offends them, they're not going to want to listen to everything else. So it was kind of me it was doing a little bit of CYA, I guess. And um, But in the two different audio montages that I ever used on this show, there was always a little bit of Elijah Price. And it's, sometimes it's, it's only when you look back at things, you're like, wow, it really has always been there. So um, there was a moment in... Um, Shoot, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, train of thought, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, God, there, I, I remembered something about the art gallery scene that that I kind of glossed over. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just to kind of circle back to the art gallery scene with the disgruntled non-customer. Again, this is one of those things where Shyamalan is hiding things in plain sight. Where Elijah Price describes the physical characteristics of the stereotypical supervillain. And we see Elijah directly after, and he fits those stereotypical, or some of those stereotypical uh, characteristics of supervillains, but it's like it doesn't register with the viewer. Shyamalan, again, never lies. He never lies at any point in this movie. He even, if anything, forewarns. And a lot of the, a lot of times his his warnings just sort of, they're not... Uh, on the first watch, they're not taken seriously by by the viewer. But he talks about the, the fact that a villain will usually have a larger-than-average-sized uh, head. And then we cut to a scene of Elijah, who looks like, because of the way his hair is done up, he has a larger-than-average-sized head. You know, I mean, it's literally back-to-back. And Knight is being extremely honest, extremely forthright, and it's and the reason I love that is because it's kind of on the viewer for not catching on sooner. I mean, jump back to the prior movie. Yeah, that is the genius of the what four word phrase. I see dead people. Mm-hmm. It is right there. Yeah, right there. And uh, yeah, yeah. The, maybe, maybe the, the sort of the difference between a twist and a reveal. Right. <laughs> These are reveals. These aren't really twists. Yes. These are reveals of things that have been happening the whole time. I agree. Anyway, so uh, 
the summary goes on to say, however, David becomes curious of his powers and begins weightlifting with Joseph by bench pressing 350 pounds, well above what he could do before. And well, no, I'll throw in this next part. Uh, Joseph begins to idolize his father and believe that he is a superhero. Although this is where this is, that's where that little statement is in, in the wiki summary. I suggest to you, Joseph idolized his father all along, but yep. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, the summary says, um, uh, Joseph begins to idolize his father and believe that he is a superhero, although David still maintains that he's just an ordinary man. Uh, putting this back on pause, the weightlifting scene is, first off, this movie is just chock full of great scenes. But even by that standard, I would say that the weightlifting scene is, yeah. it's almost in a class all by itself. And I think a big part of that is the realism of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is lifting 350 pounds. But there's a physical burden that Bruce Willis is lifting throughout that scene, and it's real. You know, I mean, acting can only take you so far. And He's that scene, re- you talked about the pace and the uh, the slowing of the pace. That's a that's a much longer, slower scene than a training montage. Yes, with a rock song would be. Yeah, and for that reason, I would I would go so far as to say it's actually more effective. Oh, because absolutely, of that. absolutely, and there's. There's a sense of joy. There's also a sense of humor. And at this point, the movie needs both of those things. Yes. So it's really well placed with a 30, 40 minutes in or wherever we are. Really, those elements are needed as well. Yeah. And the, the, the thing about it, like I say, that works for me is that you can see that Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis. The man is physically lifting. It's not I, there's I doubt it's 350 pounds, but he's lifting something. Mm-hmm, and you can see so. that his face becomes flushed. You can see the the veins in his forehead are bulging out. And there's a verisimilitude to that where Bruce Willis is physically exerting himself to lift whatever it is, um, 60 pounds or seven or just whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, and, some of those weights are fake, but I, I you, you you get the sense that not all of them are. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's it really carries off the illusion of 350 pounds, I think, just so masterfully. It's just ridiculously well done. I could watch that scene all day. It's just great. And one of the reasons that it works for me, you know, apart from, like I say, the verisimilitude, one of the reasons that it works for me is that there's this kind of slow burn acceptance on, on David's part. He starts off uh, lifting... A little bit more, I would say, than 200 pounds. Then it becomes 250. Then it becomes more and more. And you can see on his face, you know, the moment that, you know, uh, uh, Joseph even says, let's keep adding weight. And earlier, David would have said no. Mm-hmm. Right. But now he's he's game to try it. And uh, the only, one of the- I mean, his, his only, you know, uh, submission to that or, or is that, you know, Joseph keeps getting further and further away. You know, by the end, he's like hiding in the corner of the room. Yeah. And, and before he tries the final lift, he said, uh, David says, you know what to do if this goes wrong. Get mom. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know what to do. Get mom. Now, maybe this is me bending spoons a little bit too much. Maybe this is me just reading a bit too much into things. But um, at the beginning of at the beginning of the movie, our first uh, scene with uh, David He's uh, trying to flirt with uh, the sports agent. She says that she's in town to meet some football phenom. And uh, his big claim to fame, 
among other things, I imagine. But his big claim to fame is that he can run a four three forty, and um, so that's that's the big thing. Now, later, like just before this this weightlifting scene, we see David hop off a bus, and we see Joseph and some of his friends. They're playing uh, football with uh, an older guy, and Joseph even says, "Yeah, he can run a four three forty. And one of the things that I like about this is, first, it's just kind of a fun little callback to the beginning of the movie. But there's a little bit of character that's going on in this scene, the weightlifting scene itself, but also that little prelude to it, where David, at first, he he scolds uh, uh, Joseph. He's like, look, if mom finds out that you've been playing football, she's coming after both of us, all right? Mm -hmm. Like, what were you thinking? And so uh, Joseph invites him to join in the game. David declines. So Joseph wants to follow David. Now, all of a sudden, David's okay with Joseph playing football. You know, it wasn't okay until he realized that Joseph wanted to hang out with him. That's the real agenda here. And once he realized that Joseph wanted to hang out with him, now it's okay if Joseph goes back to play football. David just wants to kind of go do his own thing. So, you know, his opposition to football is clearly not absolute. And even during the weightlifting scene itself, he keeps telling Joseph, move further away, move further away. Mm -hmm. There's this distance that David is kind of demanding with his Mm -hmm. son Mm -hmm. that his son is trying desperately to close. And I do kind of like the the push and the pull between the two that, you know, you're my father and I, you know, I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. And David's not completely receptive to that because of his own identity crisis. And he's certainly not comfortable being regarded as, as a superhero by his son when up to this point, he's had no reason to believe that he is now in relation to that. You know what? This is actually one of the more believable aspects of the movie, because when you think about it, like somebody who's gone through life, never getting sick, never really sustaining physical injury. This isn't somebody who's going to instantly think, Oh my God, I have superpowers. They're going to think, Oh, well I've just gotten lucky so far, or they may not even think about it at all. And once he starts thinking about it, I think he reflexively rejects the notion completely out of hand. It's ridiculous to even think about. And yet that weightlifting scene meant more than nothing. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? Comments generally about this part uh, uh, of the film, because there's a lot of reality here, I think. I think a lesser movie may have had him lift 800 pounds or 1,000 pounds or some amount of weight that no weight rack would even contain, right? Yeah. You know, some impossible, like literally impossible for one, one weight, weight rack to have that much, or, you know, the, the, the bar would break or something like that. Yeah. A, a, a four, three forty is a good time. It's not world class. It's not Olympic level sprinter, right? It's a legitimate, the, there was a very brief, because he, he, he works at the university stadium doing security. It's a brief, very brief scene of a, of a football practice. Yes. And it look it looks legitimate. I mean, it's only a couple of seconds, but that looks legitimate. All of the stadium stuff looks it it just looks legitimate. It wouldn't it would not surprise me if this was filmed. I mean, he's a Philadelphia guy. If it was filmed at Penn or or one of the other the Temple, one of the Pennsylvania uh, colleges, and that may even been you know a few seconds of a football practice. I mean, that that stuff just looked looked legit. Yeah. And um, actually in that same scene, God, I can't believe I forgot to mention this. Um, he actually stands there watching and he's in his, uh, this becomes important later on, but he's wearing his uh, green rain poncho. Mm-hmm. And you can see on his face, like 
again, this is one of those times when the the rewatch is rewarded, where um, if you watch it the first time, it's just David, he's just doing his job, he stops, he watches the football practice a little bit, then he moves on. On the rewatch, you see, you actually start to detect that there's some longing on his face. He wants to be out there. He wishes he had been. Now, there are reasons that he didn't, and I, I think we can kind of come to that when we come to that, but there are reasons that he ultimately did not stick around in football long enough, but the the longing to do that is still very real. And the reason this works for me is that, yeah, you know, somebody who has the powers that David has, whatever the origin of them might be, you know, if it's evolution or, or, or just whatever it is, he's going to need to have the capacity to use his powers wisely. And so we saw an element of that, you know, David's kind of pure soul whenever he was uh, having his confrontation with Elijah. It was very matter of fact, very right and wrong, good and evil, not personal but more kind of a universal sense of good and evil. What you're doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. And what we see, though, is that David's pure soul, it still has human desires to it. You know, uh, there's there's still uh, an ambition to David as a man, just as a person, you know, the things that he wants to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And to me, that goes so far in establishing, uh, you know, or not developing character, you know, Yes, he, oh, he has a revealing character, especially when we learn about the details of the accident. Absolutely. It, it, it yeah. reveals his, his, his heroic, the heroic sacrifice that he made. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, you know. And um, God, it's just so good. You know, yes, the guy's unbreakable, but he, in, order to be un, to, in order to be unbreakable, he's got to be, he has to have an unshakable sense of right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And he's still, but he's still a man. And God, I just love it so much. It's so good. So, um, you ready to move on, or do you got a little bit more? Nope. All right, cool. Go All ahead. right. So uh, the summary goes on. Uh, David challenges Elijah's theory with an incident from his childhood where, uh, when he almost drowned. Elisha suggests uh, that the incident highlights the common convention whereby superheroes often have a weakness. He contends that David's weakness might be— and we're actually moving further ahead in the movie. This doesn't seem to be completely sequential here, but— um, it's easier for him to drown or choke than regular people. And uh, wow, we're, we really are skipping over quite a lot of things here. But whatever, this is, this is the summary, so we're just going to go into this. Basically, we've, we've come to a moment in the movie where we've established character, the characters have been built up, and now there is reason to believe that, the, that at least David is a superman of some kind. Mm-hmm. But then we start discovering these other facts that just don't fit into that narrative. One of which is there's the car accident where, you know, David says, yeah, I was injured in a, in a car accident. So if I'm Superman, how do you explain that? And, or I almost drowned when I was a kid. If I'm Superman, how do you explain that? And so the we'll get to the car crash, I think, soon enough. But the business with water, I think, is, first off, that's just kind of an interesting weakness all by itself. And again, does seem to be mm -hmm. kind of an ongoing element in a lot of Knight's work. That's true. But Elijah puts forth the, the proposition that, you know, water could be your weakness. And I guess the catalyst for all of that was an, a, uh, an incident that happened at Joseph's school, where Joseph saw uh, somebody being bullied 
And so he tried to intervene. And his thinking seemed to be, well, I'm kind of Superman's kind. Uh, I, I, you know, this, my dad is kind of Superman. I'm his son. So that means I got to be pretty awesome in my own right. And he finds out, no. No. And the heartbreak that Joseph shows, number one, at that realization, like the way his voice cracks, he says, I'm not like you. I mean, you know, people talk a lot of trash about child acting and how it, let's face it, it is what it is in a lot of cases. But one of the things that doesn't get talked about a whole lot anytime the subject of Unbreakable comes up, people have got tons of stuff to say about Bruce Willis, or they've got a ton of things to say about um, uh, Sam Jackson, or even Robin Wright, you could say. But for some reason, Spencer Treat Clark, I don't know of him ever really getting a whole lot of credit for the work that he put into this movie, but the way his voice cracks when he says, I'm not like you, he says that to his father. This is a dark night of the soul for Joseph as well, that, you know, yeah, your dad may or may not be Superman, but whatever he is or isn't doesn't translate to you. You're not mm-hmm. Superman. And that is a, it does, it, that's not the, the focus of the movie. So we don't spend a whole lot of time on that, but you can tell that really hits Joseph in a big way. And um, I just want to throw that out there, at least introduce the subject before we get into this water stuff a little bit more. In terms of the kid, you know, I mean, he's not Haley Joel Osment, but he's really no. good. And I, and I think, again, I think Shyamalan is showing a really deft hand at this point in his career about working with young actors. I mean, there's a real, there's a real directorial skill at that. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a really good point. That is a really good point. I mean, you know, I, I'm stunned actually that I'd never thought of that myself. I, I, I'm sorry. I got nothing. That's, that's a really good point. <laughs> and jumping ahead, the kids and signs, they're all right too. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yes. Yes. Um, wow. And that, uh, what's the, what's the girl's name? Abigail Breslin. Wow. She really went on to do yeah, big things. So, um, now as to the water thing, uh, I guess one of the things that I like about this is, and you know what, now's probably as, as good a time for me to talk about this as anything else. One of the things that I've always done is, um, I've always kind of put like, I've just mentally categorized unbreakable in the same kind of category as Scream, the, the 1997 movie Scream. Right. Uh, yeah. To me, they're, 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 they're comparable to each other in, in a lot of ways. I mean, in the, there's a, uh, I guess in, this, in, in the same way that Scream comments on mm-hmm. horror movie tropes. While, being a, while being a good horror movie. Yeah. I Unbreakable comments on, does. yeah. It, it unbreakable comments on comic book tropes and the two have this kind of how shall i uh, there's a common self-awareness i guess between the two of them but in the case of scream the self-awareness i think comes from life imitating art whereas an unbreakable art is kind of badly imitating life but i do think there's a comparison to be made between the two yeah, and, and, and sort of what i was getting at when i interrupted you there was that if you're going to comment on something the best the best way to comment upon a genre or type is to do it really well yes and i think scream did and i think unbreakable does i agree absolutely and the comic book trope of the you know the uh, uh, superhero ha- having a weakness of some kind 
this is a very grounded universe that Unbreakable is taking place in. Mm -hmm. And so whatever David's weakness is, it's got to be something that's attainable in the real world. It's got to be grounded and it's got to be something that is potentially lethal. And so in regards to that, it really is like if you think of it from the standpoint of David having incredibly dense bones that would make swimming very difficult, maybe even impossible. Water is something right, that he should fear. Interesting, right? Um, and it's just overall, it's it, this works on multiple levels. I mean, let's face it, water could be lethal to you and me, you know. Right. But it's and it's lethal to him too, although in a different kind of way. And again, it plays into that ambiguity. Well, anybody can drown. David isn't somehow unique in that regard, but his phobia of water and the the unique way it seems to affect him as as compared to anybody else. Again, there's the ambiguity that gets played there that it's handled, I think, perfectly. And um, I don't know. It's I, I just mm-hmm. I just cherish it again. I just love this movie. So. <laughs> Anyway, while surveying the stored wreckage of the train crash that he survived, David recalls the car accident that ended his athletics career, remembering that he was unharmed, number one, and number two, ripped a door off the car in order to save Audrey. David uses the accident as an excuse to quit football because Audrey did not like the violence of the sport, and this is massive. Man, Um, this is the reveal. Yes, the first major reveal. This is the this is the confirmation. Absolutely. And it's also again, it it is his heroic sacrifice. I mean, he was he was beloved in the community for his athletic skill. That is what he was known for. He has the newspaper clippings to prove it. And he willingly gives it up for the woman he loves. And of course, you could sort of in a looking back on it almost 20 years later, you know, uh, Audrey was way ahead of the curve on the violence of football. Right? And that's was. actually become an issue the last five years. Uh, yeah, it, it really has. And again, the reason, first off, this is just, a, again, in a, in a movie that's already filled to overflowing with ridiculously, amazingly good scenes, this one is really a highlight. It's young Bruce Willis, or at least that's 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 what the actor, it's obviously not Bruce yeah. Willis, but the guy looks just like Bruce. He, he looks like... If some if, if it came out that this actor was Bruce Willis's illegitimate son, <laughs> I would not be a bit surprised. Yeah. I mean, it it really is a, an uncanny resemblance. Even his voice is noticeably different, but then it would be. So right. again, that works too. And and it's again, if this were done today with a bigger budget, you would have done some sort of CGI de aging thing that, to be honest, wouldn't have looked as good because no. it wouldn't have been as real. You no, know, there's something wouldn't. about the the practical aspect of it. I love it. You're right. Absolutely right. And the thing that I like about it is, again, this kind of touches upon the subjective nature of memory. There are times when we, or maybe it's just me, maybe I'm about to reveal something about myself that's just really awkward and you're going to be uncomfortable. (laughs) I hope not. But like my experience and God knows my observation has been that the human mind is a human memory. This is an interactive construct. All right. It is people have and again, I kind of have to indict myself here a little bit. People sometimes have a tendency to remember things the way they want them to have happened instead of the way that they really did happen. And um, there are some personal examples I could cite, but hopefully speaking in generalities is going to be enough for people to relate to this. 
what I think we're seeing is David remembering the truth of what happened mm-hmm. in his and mind. Th- sorry. And I think he's told the story the other way so many times. That's become part of his and Audrey, the family lore, the community lore, that he believed that. And yeah. he may have even believed it at the time. But, you but can this see, is the truth. Yeah, and he, he, in a very restrained kind of way, rips the door open. <laughs> and there's an, this is the moment where it's, it, now it's undeniable. Look, it's one thing to say that you could just pull a door open just with your human strength. I can believe that that there are people out there who, if they're desperate enough, maybe they can do that. He does not do that. He this folds, goes beyond adrenaline. Yeah, he folds the metal with his fingers. Now, he strains, he struggles to do it, he's exerting himself heavily, but he folds the metal over in the door and just shears the door open with his with his fingers. And there's no amount of adrenaline you could ever have firing through you that will allow you to do that. And this is the moment when it truly becomes undeniable. He's remembering, I think, he's remembering this, the truth of it, what really happened. He's remembering that for the first time in a really long time. I think that's true, yes. And now he, he believes it. And there's this moment of calculation that you can see on the actor's face. The passing motorist says, hey, buddy, you injured? And now he sees an opportunity. He's like, this is what I really want anyway. I know what this is going to cost me, but it's worth it. Mm-hmm. And he, you never see him say, oh, yeah, I, I jacked up my leg. He just, you can see he's considering what's going to happen. I think this is what he always wanted. He wanted a way out of football. I've known people, I met people like this um, when I was in high school that they are looking for a way out. But I mean, dude, the school's counting on you. The coaches, they're counting on you. Um, There is state funding that is potentially at stake if you don't stick with this. And I mean, guys, I live in Texas. I mean, this is, you want to talk about a place where, yeah, like high school football is a religion for some people. There. It, guys, if you don't believe me, go watch that movie, Friday Night Lights, and understand, I knew those people when I was growing up, okay? I used to live in Odessa. You know, we knew who Booby Miles was. We knew who who those, other, who those um, uh, you know, Comer and all the rest. I knew them, all right? And, um, you know, I was, again, I was just that much younger than they were, but they were celebrities around the town. High school football in Texas is a bigger deal for some people who live in Texas. That's a bigger deal than college football. That's how seriously that they take it. And, you know, the the pressure that, you know, David was living under to, to be the best, and he was certainly capable of being the best, he understood that this is a conflict between him and Audrey, and it will always be there. And, and the day's going to come. He knows this. He's going to have to choose football or Audrey. And he sees here, this is the way he can choose uh, Audrey and no one's going to question it. No one's going to sit here and say, you, you let us down. You know, he has a way out. He gets to walk away as a hero. Yeah. And I, I mean, God, it's, I I just, I, I I love this scene again in a movie that has so many amazing scenes in it already. Mm -hmm. This is I would say this is prop this I don't know if this is the best scene in the movie but if it's not it's number 2. You know, this is an amazingly good scene and it's kind of ironic that it doesn't have any of the principal cast in it. It's still That's true. That's true. Such an amazing scene. So, anyway, uh you ready to move on or or do you want to talk more about this? Yes. Move on. 
right. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Come on. Move on. Move on. Move on. <laughs> um, under Elijah's influence, David realizes that what he thought was just a natural instinct for picking out dangerous people during security checks is actually a form of extrasensory uh, extra perception. And so now consciously honing this ability, David discovers that, what, that when he comes into physical contact with other people, he's able to glimpse criminal acts that they have committed. At Elijah's suggestion, David stands in the middle of a uh, of a crowd in Philadelphia's 30th Street Station. As various people bump into him, he senses the crimes they've perpetrated, including theft, assault, <coughs> rape, and finds that he can and finds one that he can act upon. A sadistic janitor who's committed a home invasion uh, killed the father and is now holding the wife and the two children captive. And again, this is just overloaded with stuff here. There's a lot yeah. that we need to go through. And there's even a scene that we've completely abandoned, or not abandoned, but kind of skipped over here that I want to touch back to. Is that the gun scene? Yeah. Um, well, actually, even the drug scene, you could say. Oh, but, yeah, uh, right. Yeah, right. The, uh, the gun scene, there is a moment in the movie that's not specifically highlighted in this summary. Uh, David is at the stadium hanging out with Elijah, uh, he bumps into a guy wearing a camo army jacket and believes that he's carrying uh, a gun tucked into his pants. And Elisha later chases the guy down and sees that there is a gun tucked into his pants. And Ad Elijah ad advances the thesis that, you know, look, comic books, they talk about X-ray vision or they talk about uh, invisibility or all these other things. What if this ability that they have is just intuition that they can see other people's sin? I wrote uh, down super hunch. Super hunch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like it. You take the lead on this one. But, Go for it. but yours being able to see someone's sin that is much more serious sounding than super hunch. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I chose sin, I'm going to circle back to that. No, that's actually. Good later on but the that sequence basically ends with a camo boy running down a, a set of uh, it looks like concrete stairs mm -hmm. elijah tries to pursue him slips falls jacks himself up pretty good and um the reason i like that is before his bones break his glass cane breaks yes yes and first so, of all in, in in a comic book what kind of person would have a glass walking stick i'm just asking the question yeah, and especially he also has that really cool car too, doesn't he? Yeah, probably not the hero. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, These the are nerf. accessories for the villain. Yeah, the the nerf car. He's got the customized car, and <laughs> I don't know. It's just amazing. And I also love that trench coat that he's wearing. You know, that just yeah. kind of shiny. Yeah. I don't even know what that is material. But there there is a moment, and it does bear upon. It turns out this bears upon a. Uh, movie coming in the future there is a moment where like i guess esp phase two where david starts consciously using it in the uh, football stadium and he gets he it's like he's hearing echoes of certain things mm, right. and he's occasionally seeing things he bumps into a uh, a guy who looks suspiciously like the director of this film <laughs> uh dealing drugs and again this introduces ambiguity when he searches the, the supposed drug dealer, he finds nothing. So does David have powers or does he not? Well, in, in the sort of ESP sequence, 
the drug dealer is wearing a certain kind of coat. When David searches the drug dealer, he's wearing a different kind of coat. Mm -hmm. But you don't notice that on the first watch. You notice it on the rewatch, but David is, obviously this is the first watch for him. He believes that his ESP is an error. It wasn't. The guy just changed coats. Now maybe this happened months ago or weeks ago or at some time in the past. Or maybe he changes coats as part of his drug dealing thing. Yeah, that, yeah, that may be the way that the, the, the transactions take place. Yeah. But at least in the moment, he has reason to believe that uh, maybe he doesn't have powers. But before that moment, he bumps into a mother and a son and he overhears. He doesn't see, but he overhears what sounds like it could what could be child abuse. And come to find out, Knight has made public statements that, yes, this was, in fact, child abuse. And yes, we have not, let's just say we have not heard or seen the last of, the, of, of that mother and that child. Let's just say that. That is important, and it's coming up later. And the reason I kind of want to make a, a point of mentioning it here is people who are in a position to know, including Knight himself, but other people, they've said that this isn't, this is not a retcon. It was always this. And it was intended to be this even back in 1999 when Knight was writing the script for this film. That's who these characters always were. This is no retcon. So although it would be kind of a trope if it was a retcon, but it's not a retcon. (laughs) So, um, but we'll deal with that when we talk more about Split and God knows uh, Glass. But right now, uh, David has basically homed in on uh, a way to develop and refine his uh, sin sense or his ESP or his intuition, whatever you want to call it. And he's basically, you can see that he's sort of trying to triage, like, what am I going to do with this stuff? And there even comes a moment when David is so horrified by the stuff that he's seeing. What I think would have happened in that moment is I think he would have chickened out. He's like, look, it's one thing to say that, you know, um, I can stop somebody from dealing drugs in a football stadium. But when you start getting into we are at a whole different level here. Yeah. And so I think what I think what happened in that scene was he's backing away. He was going to leave the station and go home. He's like, you know what? Hell with this. I'm not cut out for this. I can't do this. And that's when he bumps into the janitor because he does. He backs right into him. Mm -hmm. And that's when he sees something. Okay, dude, you cannot ignore this. Okay, it's one. Look, I'm not I'm, I'm saying date rape is not okay. I'm not saying date rape is okay. I'm saying it's not okay. But at the same time, it's like, it's done. There's nothing you can do to save yeah, him. Yeah, it's could over. you get there fast enough to, yeah. Yeah, it's already happened. It's over. When that guy smashes the beer bottle on top of that woman's head and starts shouting things at her, it's already happened. There's nothing you can do to make that right. Uh, when that woman shoplifted from the jewelry store, it's already happened. You can't make that right. This but is this is, a, this is an ongoing situation. Yeah, and you can. And it's like... This is David's heroic instinct. The purity of his soul is coming out. And now it it was at war and it was losing the war with Mm -hmm. David's um, human heart, his frailties, his weaknesses. I'm not I'm I'm just a guy. I can't do this. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. And now bumping into the man in orange, he can't let this slide. His heroic nature is now the part that takes over. Uh, again, not to get too darkness to light here, but he's got a human frailty over and against a different will. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So now he pursues. David follows the janitor to the victim's house. Actually, you know what? Before we do you uh, do you have anything before we get into the rescue? Do you have anything else you want to add to that? Because I kind well, of bumped you out of the way. I, I just I I like the way that this this ESP. I'm sticking with hunch power. Is is demonstrated in that for a couple of seconds these people's clothing or you know something about them is mag is intensified for him. Yeah. You know, he sees he gets bright orange, sort of everything sort of fades to a black and white, but he sees this bright orange uh, uniform of the janitor or or some other identifiable thing. And it lasts a few seconds and it and then it fades away. So I well, think that, that was seems just to- a nice a nice Again, directorial, cinematic touch. I agree. And actually, something I, – I can't believe I overlooked this. Um, there is a moment uh, to kind of circle back to the football stadium. David bumps into Camo Boy, mm-hmm. and here again, the sound drops off. Yes. David doesn't – We he get – it comes out later. He got like a hint or he got an impression, but there's a flourish that's being employed there every time David uses his um, – I'm just going to call it ESP. Um, you're welcome to call it anything you want, but I'm, I don't know what else to call it. Uh, ESP. He is refining it. He is developing it. It's um, becoming more potent. And um, it ultimately, where it culminates in this movie is when David has his ESP vision going, the world becomes black and white. The only color comes from the perp. Right. And so... Well, there's no way to convey that in an audio way. So Knight just sort of drops off the audio when he bumps into Camo Boy, and then he brings it back up. And as as this this perception becomes more and more powerful, David's able to see things more clearly, almost like a security camera. And uh, it's still a world of black and white, and the the perps are always highlighted for his and I suppose the audience's convenience. But actually, one th- before we actually move into the rescue, I just actually remembered something else. One of the things that happens as David begins exploring his powers and considering the possibilities that, you know, maybe he is something more, the more he does that, the closer he gets to his wife. And I would say to Joseph as well, but he and Audrey begin reconciling. The more David makes peace with his true self, the more he's able to truly be a husband to his wife and a father to his son. And that reconciliation, what we see is the beginning of what would be a slow process. And I appreciate yes. that as well. It's not microwave reconciliation. This is uh, slow and low is what it's going to take. Yes, indeed. So uh, sorry to keep ping- ping-ponging around here, but I realize now this really isn't the best summary in the whole world. But anyway, <clears throat> moving right along. Uh, David follows the janitor to the victim's house, frees the children, finds the mother, but the janitor ambushes him, pushes him off of a balcony and into a swimming pool. David nearly drowns since he can't swim, but the children rescue him. He then attacks the janitor from behind and strangles him while he himself remains uninjured, but discovers that the mother is already dead. And uh, there's still more in the summary to go through, but this is, I think, a good pausing point. Not much more in the summary, but a little bit more. I, I, um, I, I think the scene with the pool tarp was pretty cool. The process of that sort of folding in on itself. Yeah, it's a good he, suspense. He, the, yeah, there's a tarp is over the pool, and he lands on that, and his weight sort of pulls up some of the 
anchors for the tarp and, and his weight. So there's a slow, suspenseful process as he sort of gets wrapped wrapped up in it as it sinks below the pool. Yeah, it's very Spielbergy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, you know, as the viewer, we now fully understand the peril that he faces just in water point blank. But now you introduce the danger imposed by the tarp. Maybe if he'd just fallen into an open swimming pool, well, that's not ideal, yeah. but oh, it's, an yeah. open, it's an open pool, so maybe he can just get out of it. Falling onto a tarped swimming pool, that's dangerous even for yeah. people who are not David. Exactly. And, and, um, and you, you sort of teased this before, but you know he's wearing this rain hoodie. It's pouring down rain. And uh, you know no need to be subtle about it at this point. This, this is where my wife yelled, and he has a cape. Yes. <laughs> yes, he does. And I, the reason I like the fact that it's a rain poncho is mm-hmm. I kind of view that as a subconscious thing on David's part. He would want to be protected from water. Yes. Mm-hmm. In the rain, this will protect right. him from the water. Right. And he may not have been fully conscious of that. He just feels most, uh, yeah, it's got a hood and he needs a hood. But that's not the only way of looking at it, you know? Right. And um, Connor just loves this movie. Um, <laughs> anyway. So the other thing that comes out of this is um, we've I, I've been calling David Superman throughout this film. And this is where we discover maybe he's not Superman, you know, because David, he kills the kidnapper. And that becomes clear in the newspaper. If you put the thing on pause and you read, you don't get to read the entire column, but that is a real column. And it does report upon the facts of the case. And I assume that column is canon. And so it says that, you know, the uh, the uh, perp had been choked to death uh, during the rescue and David kills the guy. And, you know, we're kind of moving up a little bit beyond this section of the uh, of the uh, uh, synopsis. But he uh, later he he carries Audrey up the stairs at a at his house. He lays down beside her. And this is a callback to a conversation they'd had earlier in the movie. He says, I had a bad dream which is about the most that he can tell her, let's face it. And you think about it, yes, this is a moment of reconciliation for, for him and Audrey, but it's also a statement of literal, well, not literal fact, but it is a statement of fact. Mm-hmm. David has just seen some very horrifying things. You know, He saw, using his perception, um, date rape. He saw somebody uh, get assaulted with a beer bottle. He saw a... Uh, he saw a robbery take place. Oh, yeah. And there was also um, a, a home invasion, kidnapping, murder. And then he had to defeat the bad guy. He's had, a, he's had a hard night. And one of the powers that is not remarked upon in this movie is David's ability to bear up to that. You know, my it's not exactly groundbreaking for me to say that, you know, there are things that people can see and be exposed to that will break them. You know, there are certain things that, you know, let's face it, it's just too much for some people. You know, David has the ability to withstand that, but it still affects him. You know, there is a, there is a sense in which it's not just his body that's unbreakable. It's his mind as well, but he's still affected by what he sees. And what I think we're supposed to take away from the reconciliation he has with Audrey is that Audrey is the normalcy in his life. She's the decency in his life. She's the, you know, her job, she's a nurse. Her job is to heal people. And I think David needs that from her. You know, she is 
he can handle this himself, but he needs her to, in her own way, unknowingly support him as he's a superhero who does and these amazing things, but also sees these horrifying things that people do to one another. This is what Audrey's bringing to the table, and she doesn't even know it. She's enabling him. And I uh, just want to get your take on that. That's interesting. I like, uh, you know, that was you know, part of the conflict with the football. His football career was that she felt that she was on the opposite end you know, of a career path. She was in the healing arts, not on the not in the violent arts. Um, again, uh, you could play with, uh, you know, their careers were mirror images. Yeah. And and they couldn't do both. You know, they had to. He 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 had to pick one. Yeah. And I like the idea that David accepting his own personal self, accepting his identity as a superhero is the more he does that. That's what enables reconciliation with his wife and son. Mm -hmm. And it's of a piece, I think, with again, to kind of call back to the other movies. Malcolm Crow in The Sixth Sense only really finds uh, peace with who he is when he makes the realization that he's a ghost too. Graham Hassan's signs only truly comes to a sense of inner peace himself whenever he realizes that he's been at war with his own faith. And the fact is, there is a God. He does love him. And the fact that there is a God is, the, is probably the only thing that saved his son from the alien in signs. Mm. And that sense of acceptance is what enables Graham to become a priest again at the end of the movie. And that I think is, you know, that same, I don't know, uh, Dana Ma or realization or whatever, whatever you want to call it is shared in all those three movies, I think is expressed yes. most powerfully here in Unbreakable where mm -hmm. David can't be a superhero without his family. He can't have a family unless he is a superhero and the two are one. And the realization of that is what is ultimately where David's inner peace comes from. What do you think? Yeah, again, not not to get too darkness to light on us, but uh, you know the 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 themes are there. And yeah. just just as a broad comment, I'll say that Shyamalan really does things of faith and religious people really well. Yeah, and and really, I think again, honestly and 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 sincerely. But I think I mean there is something to accepting who you are who you were created to be, who created you to be, to be that, that is a really big step <laughs> towards a fulfilling, fulfilled life. I agree. I totally agree. So uh, moving right along, uh, we kind of touched upon some of this already, but uh, that night he and Audrey reconciled. The following morning, he secretly shows Joseph a newspaper article on the anonymous heroic act featuring a sketch of David in the hooded rain poncho he wore while confronting the janitor. Joseph realize, uh, recognizes the hero as his father and promises to keep his secret. Secret and, identity. Yeah, another trope. Secret identity. Boom. And someone who knows it. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> yeah. And um, the thing is, it's not only David who's finding peace here. Joseph is finding yes. it as well. Yes. Um, his beliefs have been validated. Because when I, when I was watching this the first time, I didn't understand Joseph's tears. You know, um, but now it as an adult and kind of understanding the parent child dynamic a little bit better. Right. Sure. Uh, on, on this end of it, I mean, um, this is, you know, it, I, I think Joseph always had a tremendous amount of love and affection for his father. 
now it's been amplified into the stratosphere, you know, and how could it not be, you know, I mean, like your dad is just this amazing man and he knows it, you know it. And now to a degree, the whole world knows it. And it's like, this would have to be one of the happiest mornings of Joseph's entire life. And without, again, I, you said that we're not spoiling ahead and I don't want to do that too much, mm -hmm, sure. but I, the one thing I do want to throw out there is I think that one of the lasting regrets of Joseph's life is going to be that he was never truly able to share, as far as we know, he was never really able to share this with his mother right. because they can't. Right. But, you know, I think that, you know, Joseph, when it comes to David, doesn't have a whole lot of regrets, but I do think that would be one of them. So um, anyway, uh, and then after all of that, we get to the, the biggest scene arguably of the entire movie, or maybe the most important, I don't know. But um, David attends an exhibition at limited edition and meets Elijah's mother, who explains the difference between villains who fight heroes using physical strength over and against those who use their intelligence. So there's a huge tip off mm -hmm. right there. Elijah invites David to the back room of the store and asks him to, to shake his hand. The act of doing so reveals that Elijah was, in fact, responsible for numerous high-profile accidents, which are now revealed to be terrorist events, including the bombing of David's train. Or I don't even know if this was a bomb. It's I never really made bombing. I think he did something with the brakes, yeah. it seemed like, but yeah. Either way, he sabotaged the train, put it that way. Elijah yes. believes they are destined to become enemies of each other and finally claims that his childhood nickname, Mr. Glass... Uh, due to his condition. He's finally owning it. As David leaves, it's revealed that he eventually reported Elijah's terrorist attacks to the police, and Elijah was placed in a psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane, the end. And before we get going into the analysis of this scene, I actually want to start at the very, very, very end, and I just want to challenge you with something. Was this, you know, those little text pieces at the end of the film, were those intentioned or were those intentionally used as uh, bookends for the beginning of the film, in your opinion? Or did somebody at the movie studio chicken out on the ending and insist that text pieces be added so that we know what happened at the end of the movie? And I'm, In other words, did they want it made clear to the audience that David summoned the police? Or, or did, is this something that was always in the script from day one? I would think that it was there the whole time because a it does it does bookend uh, thematically the text at the beginning and also this is what vigilantism would look like in quote unquote the real world yeah he can't I mean whatever he did to the to the janitor guy that was you know not many witnesses yeah right whether that was a sleeper hold or worse, <laughs> he, 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 he can't do that here. There's no immediate and, peril. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what is the proper way? What is, what is the proper thing to do? The proper thing to do is to call the authorities. Yeah. I, and, and, and let, let those heroes take over at this point. So to me, I, I, I think that's what the vigilantism would look like. I agree. I, and I t I'm going to err on the side of suggesting this was scripted um, as well. But uh, to me, and, and we're going to talk about the big meat of uh, of that scene, you know, I promise. But 
this again kind of speaks to uh, the to David's unshakable sense of right and wrong. You know, uh, what we see is him storm out of the back room. And I think we, you know, I don't think we absolutely need it from a story perspective. I mean, we don't need these text pieces to tell us what's what. Um, But this does, I think, speak to uh, David's unshakable sense of right and wrong, that he would specifically take the time to call the police. You know, he wouldn't take matters into his own hands. He doesn't need to. Elijah is, he is sitting in a room that is filled to overflowing with police evidence of these terrorist attacks. Mm -hmm. And so everything that would need to be done, or rather need to be gathered uh, in in order to prosecute Elijah, everything is already back there. And so all the police have to do is just go in there and look. And so the other reason I tend to believe that this was scripted is you blink and you miss it. There was a uniformed police officer in the gallery already. Ah, okay. So to me... A tap on the shoulder and a point. Yeah. uh, I think all David would have needed to do, having already seen... Because he was... You you could... I think David even kind of glances at him as he's talking to uh, uh, Mrs. Price. They're talking about the villains. And you can see the the officer just kind of wandering around, looking at the different art. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you know, David already saw him. All he has to do is just go straight there. You know, that's it. You know, he doesn't have to go run, find a payphone because this was 2000. You know, he can just say, hey, can you just take a look at this? Just look at it. Just tell me what you think. Okay. I'm not trying to prejudice you. Just let me know what you think. Um, And in in, in the comic book tropes, authorities are trustworthy. Yes, they are. It's Commissioner Gordon. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. So now there's the... uh, the big meat of uh, this reveal here. And um, I'm going to just say that this was a pretty big sucker punch for me. The first time I watched it uh, where, where I had assumed they were going, and maybe this was just a clever little bit of sleight of hand on uh, Knight's part, but there comes a point in the movie where Elijah, uh, he, he goes uh, stair diving and so he's confined to a wheelchair for, I would say, the latter half of the movie. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, comic book tropes. Okay, so he's kind of going to become. This is a, this is kind of operating in the in the vocabulary of uh, Professor Xavier. And so what what Elijah is going to be is sort of like the the wise, frail mentor mm, figure. Interesting, right? And. Um, because I've read X-Men comics. I mean, and I'd seen those cartoons. And at that point I had seen the movie. I was familiar with, uh, you know, the X-Men and it stood to reason considering the plethora of Marvel comics that were just scattered throughout this film. Obviously I, to me, it just seemed like the most likely association that we were supposed to make was professor X. Right. And so, you know, this could be me just overthinking it on the first viewing, or it could have been sleight of hand. I don't know. But for, Elijah to be revealed not as the mentor, but as the as not not just a villain, the villain. Right. Totally caught off guard by that, you know. And because I thought, ah ha ha ha, Mr. Glass, you know, you you think you're so clever. Well, no, in fact, he is clever. <laughs> and so, um, and then that because the time between the reveal and the those you know, closing credits or the the screen going blank, it's got to be less than a minute. Was yeah. the '90s? I mean, this movie it, that it ends fast. And yeah, I think that that's part of the genius of it. You don't get a chance to to catch your breath, to catch your mental breath. 
you know, yeah. while you're processing this and you're reading this and it's over and it's but and the lights and the lights go up in the theater. I caramba, what did I just yeah. Well and I I think one of the reasons that it was so effective I, look, guys, I, I've said it in my Smallville shows a million times. I don't have the same eye for acting and performance that a lot of other people do. I'm a writing guy, you know. So when push comes to shove, I'm always going to err on the side of telling you what I think stuff means rather than how good a job somebody did performing it. You know, it's almost like that's kind of above my pay grade in a certain kind of way. <laughs> did you did you get all the lines out there that are in the script? Yeah. OK, we're good. That's, I, I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. I'm just saying that's just a, a weakness of my own. But having said all of that, I don't, I'm not completely helpless. And I, <coughs> excuse me, I think the actress's name is uh, Charlene Woodard. She has uh, this moment, we, we've talked about it. We had this, she had this moment with uh, David. Uh, Mrs. Price is, uh, we never really see what art they're looking at, but she has this moment where, with David where she, defines the two types of villains that exist and there's something about her performance and her delivery that you just kind of drink in every single word that she says i mean i would say that really all of her scenes are like this in the movie she has this way of just like this certain kind of screen presence that not just anybody has i mean this is just talent after a certain point but you're just I at least was just drinking in every single word that she said in that art gallery about you know the different kinds of villains and everything and you know esoteric trivia about the artist and where this particular piece comes from and I think that this is one of those times when this isn't the script being the script I kind of wonder sometimes is there a reason that Charlene Woodard was given this line about two different kinds of villains because if you think about it realistically that should be Jackson's line. So giving it to Woodard, it's almost like Knight wanted to highlight it, the importance of this. This is about to become very relevant very soon in less than a minute, and you guys need to be ready. So I'm going to make sure it's in the hands of, uh, or rather in the mouth of this actress that's just so memorable. She has such a strong screen presence. You will remember this moment when it when I pay it off in 30 seconds, you know? And I, I just I can't help thinking that 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 was no coincidence. I, I kind of have to wonder, maybe he did that on purpose. What do you think? To me, the key is that you don't have to wait very long for that to come around. Like you said, 30 seconds or something. Yeah. And this, and this comes around, you know, this prophecy comes true. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, that's pretty much the end of, uh, the, uh, the Wikipedia summary. Uh, honestly, this is one of those things like any great piece of art. I could probably, you know, talk talk about it all day, just bang away about it all day. But uh, I think, you know, like I say, you know, we are at the end of the uh, the uh, summary, so I think that's probably going to be a pretty good place to uh, wrap up the discussion. But before I let you go, there's I got two items of business. Number one, do you have any uh, uh, any parting shots or any parting thoughts or anything that we skipped over that you still want to uh, uh, bring out here before we call it a day? Yeah, I would say one of the things that I noticed just in, in doing a little bit of research about the movie was that, uh, let's see if I can find my notes here, but it was actually nominated for a couple of horror and sci-fi awards. Yeah. It was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award, which I assume was horror 
horror-related writing for the yeah. best screenplay and a, and a nebula for best script, which is in the, the science fiction realm. And here in 2019, we saw a superhero horror flick, right? Brightburn, was it? Mm -hmm. And this one is actually pretty close to that. It's certainly a superhero suspense film. Yes. And it's 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 getting close to what in the 2000s, what 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 we may have meant by a horror film then, you know, before slashers and other torture porn, quote unquote, whether that sort of film before that sort of film sort of took over what horror yeah. was. This is this is certainly I mean the the comparisons between Shyamalan and 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 Hitchcock are there and Shyamalan certainly does his best to to uh, live into that comparison uh, in 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 a lot of ways but this does have that sort of Hitchcockian sus suspense vibe to it and I think that's part of that might be part of why it's it's so hard to categorize you know we give the Marvel movies such credit for and rightly so for saying Winter Soldier, it's a superhero film, but it's also a spy thriller, or so and so is this type of movie, but it's also this. Yeah. This is a superhero movie or comic book movie, but it's also a taut, suspenseful, light horror piece as well. Yeah, I could see that. And maybe that's why it was sort of hard to categorize at the time. Yeah. And I can see where this definitely would have thrown wide audiences for a loop. Um, one of the things that I didn't really comment on uh, too much is, uh, I mean, obviously this movie came out in 2000, which is, let's just be honest, pretty, that was pretty well before the, uh, the, the comic book monopoly that we live in these days. Um, this is one of those films, I think, that was, I don't want to say misunderstood, but I don't think people really grasped it, not completely when it was in theaters, definitely found its audience on uh, home video. And uh, over time, this is the, this I think has been shown to be probably uh, Knight's strongest work. Um, I'll go out on a limb and, and say that I think that this is probably his. It's certainly in the, in the very far echelons of the upper tier, yes. Yeah, and agreed. agreed. the very common, good. The common talking point is that this movie was so far ahead of its time that maybe this not quite deconstruction, because if you think about it, this isn't, there are limits to how much you can really call this a deconstruction, but this kind of light deconstruction of something that most people didn't really understand back then, but they understand very well now. This movie had a kind of ignominious box office run. I don't, th in fact, if anything, I think it might actually be worse today, precisely for the same reason that it that it kind of struggled in the first place that yeah. people want you know back then people didn't want a superhero movie today people do want a superhero movie and there it, it would struggle for different reasons but I think it would still struggle and I would even go so far as might even do worse today if it, if it came out right and I don't know if it would necessarily have the same uh, critical reevaluation in the future that it's experienced in the last 20 years so that's we possible. can't know yeah we uh, can't know what would have happened you know if but um it is food for thought so anyway uh but the uh, last uh, i said i had two things for you the uh, last thing is uh before we call it a day uh, why don't you tell everybody uh, where it is that they can find you uh well mo most of what uh what we do it's uh, me and 
me and M, we're at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, home of such shows as the Quarterbin Podcast, which, as of this recording, recently released an episode featuring Mr. Trennis Magnus as a guest. <laughs> um, and we've been doing that for, well, however long you've been doing this show, that's as long as we've been doing that, within a number of days, as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> our, my, our, my, my podcasting twin. <laughs> and then, as, as we teased out a number of times three or four years ago, uh, we started a side project about one of our other interests, religion and spirituality, and how those things tie into pop culture, and that is dorkness to light. All of which are good, by the way. Thank you. And you've got a blog, too. You've got a dorkness to light blog, don't forget. Yep, and a Tumblr. And that's where I kept, I was thinking Pinterest, but yeah, no, you're right, it's Tumblr. That is Absolutely. M's baby. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, all right, well, so <clears throat> uh, so that's pretty much it uh, for Unbreakable. Now, as I've said before, obviously this is part of a trilogy, and so uh, Professor Allen has uh, kindly agreed to join in on the discussions for uh, the the sort of crypto sequel uh, split, <laughs> and then the uh, concluding chapter of the uh, trilogy, Glass. He's uh, kindly uh, agreed to join in on uh, on uh, both of those, and we're going to be discussing that in the coming weeks. But be re I'm going to be real honest with you guys. I'm not sure when he and I are actually going to have a chance to record that, but I do want to re uh, release them all back to back to back. So. It may be quite a while before you're actually hearing this, but my intention, at least, is to release the episode that I do with uh, the uh, good professor about Split next week, and then the episode that we will do about Glass the week after that. So that's that's the plan. We'll see how well that turns out. But uh, well, just Steve, to give your listeners some context, woo, that 2024 presidential election, wow, never saw that coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, could, it, it could come to that. I mean. I, <laughs> I, I I really do want to. I'm not sure when you and I can do this again, but I, I really do want to do it soon. So, Absolutely. but I, if if I could have my druthers, hopefully we're gonna at least release these episodes in 2019, which is when this episode is being recorded. <laughs> so that's what I'm hoping. But we'll Sounds we'll good. see. No pressure. So, but uh, either way, I think that's pretty. I just want to thank uh, uh, Alan for uh, joining in with me. Uh, this has been a ton of fun. I appreciate all the time that you've given me. I think that's pretty much it for us this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. We are out. Beautiful. Let me know if you need any of the recordings. Uh, I get down. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. 
My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.
everybody, Magnus here. The hiatus is over and Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is back. And you know what else is back? Magnus talks about Smallville. My podcast's usual discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows periodically gets put on hold so that I can go full fanboy on Smallville. Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history, and personally, it's my favorite live-action incarnation of Superman. And I'm not alone either, because listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville is, and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. Now that the hiatus is over, I'm planning to continue my reappraisal of Smallville Phase 2 by taking a deep dive into the Sainted Season 7. Through the course of my discussion, I'll reveal why the Sainted Season 7 is my favorite season of Smallville's entire run, and I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, returning to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality in the summer of 2019. And listen for yourself about why Smallville in general and the Sainted Season 7 in particular are both awesome. Magnus talks about Smallville. Coming back soon to 2TrueFreaks.com.